trust that you're doing well. If you have your copy of God's Word, I invite you to go to the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 3, as we continue to make our way through the book of Colossians this semester. Uh, Excited as uh, we look at really uh, three pairings of different commands for what it looks like to live out a Christ-centered life. So Colossians 3, uh, verses 18 and 19 is where we'll be tonight. If you guys would stand with me as we pay honor to the reading of God's Word. Colossians 3, uh, beginning in verse 18, this is the Word of the Lord. Wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, Love your wives and do not be bitter toward them. This is the word of the Lord. We praise him and thank him for keeping it for us. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity we have to come and worship and uh, praise your name. Thank you for our, our worship team and their faithfulness to prepare and to lead us to exalt you and prepare our hearts to hear from your word. Father, as we turn our attention now to the preaching and teaching of your word, uh, we're well aware, we say this week in and week out, as we pray to you, that we're not the only people who know the gospel and preach the gospel. So, Father, we think of just the different churches in our own city, and we ask that you would watch over them. We think of specifically tonight, Baptist Temple, Mark Brownsville, and their pastor there, that you would watch over that congregation, that they would grow and they would uh, be bold in proclaiming the name of Christ as they reach people in a different part of the city from us. And Father, we also think of our, our friends at Second Baptist uh, on our mind regularly and on our heart as they uh, are in the process of finding a new pastor to shepherd them. And we ask that you would direct the right person to their church and that they would uh, be able to grow together under his leadership, Father. Uh, we also know tonight, God, we are just so aware of the different uh, people groups that they don't know you, they've never heard of you, God, and there's so many that come to our mind, and Father, that should burden us just in and of itself, the fact that there are so many yet who don't know you, uh, they don't know you, and they've never even heard of you, so I ask and pray that if it would be your will to, to raise up missionaries from amongst us that would go uh, from And two, all the four corners of this world, God, just even thinking tonight of what it would be like to not know you. Father, we pray tonight if there's one in here who doesn't know you, that they would be convicted of their need for you and that they would uh, trust in you for the forgiveness of their sins. And now, Father, as we turn our attention to your word, I pray that you would give me clarity of mind and you would help me as I preach to get out of the way and, and clearly articulate what this text is saying. It's in your son's name that we ask these things. Amen. You guys can be seated. You know, one of the things that everyone seems to dislike in life is inconsistency. It's just something that we dislike. We want people to be consistent. We want consistent professors. We want consistent bosses. And most of the time, just in life in general, we'd like life to at least be consistent. Think about it. You don't want a professor 
hopefully you don't want a professor that one day decides that they're going to take late work, the next day they're not going to take late work, and then the day after they go back to whatever was previously assigned. You want the professor to be even-handed. You don't want the rules to change around you all the time. Um, And I think that's important for us, even as we consider what it means to follow Christ, that we want to be consistent Christians. We want to be consistent. We're not going to be perfect. I think that's one thing that we're well aware of, is that we're not going to be perfect, but we do need to strive to live consistent and holy lives. I think that's just a general thing that we're after. And here, as the Apostle Paul continues to wrap up his exhortation to the Colossians, he now moves to three um, specific different household relationships and begins to write in instruction. What's interesting is he starts with the most intimate and moves to the least intimate. So he starts with wives and husbands, moves to children and parents, and concludes with servants or slaves and their masters. Or we could say workers and their bosses. When we get there, we'll unpack what that means even more. I think ultimately, though, and and this is really important for us to understand, ultimately, the Apostle Paul doesn't start here. He finishes here. He starts and finishes here because ultimately what he's after is that the theology that he is already given would impact the lives and the takeaways of the people that he's now writing to. He's putting here feet to theology because theology always precedes action. A lot of times we try to live inconsistent lives, disconnected from what we say we believe. And now, here, in these verses, the Apostle Paul is going to strive to say, this is what it means to live consistently, we. So, we need to be consistent. That's why this idea of Christ-centered marriages uh, comes to us tonight. may seem odd to to, to stop here to have a sermon like this inside of our ministry, but I think it's important because one of our great temptations is to disconnect ourselves from the world or to be too in love with the world. And here, Paul is not saying to become more like the world, and he's also not saying to erase yourself from what it means and what it looks like to live out in the world. So don't buy into either of those tensions. Christians tend to try to remove themselves completely from the world. That ends up poorly for them. And then on the flip side, we can be too in love with the world. So what does that look like, though, practically as we apply it to our relationships? Specifically, the area of marriage. I think this is timely. If you're thinking about getting married, if you like the idea of one day getting married, if you're dating someone, you're engaged to someone, if you just happen to be here, um, most of the people in this room at some level are thinking about marriage. Some of you are thinking about how good it would be to be married. Some of you are thinking how great it would be to be with somebody else. Hopefully you're not married um, when you're thinking that, but if you are, uh, it's too late. 
two points. We'll move quickly to our sermon body this evening. Two points really to highlight the two relationships. And this will follow over the next two weeks plus tonight. Paul begins here by addressing the wives first. Look at verse 18. Wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Now, we read this and I'm just going to assume tonight that this is probably not one of the things that you would like to be kept in Scripture. It seems odd. It seems to use a 2019 type of language. It seems like this is just another example of how Christianity is a cis white male patriarchal society that wants to put women down. That would be a 2019 way of understanding this culturally. However, this is not the case, and and we need to unpack what this means. Again, notice the language. Wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Some are going to argue and have argued that this verse or passages like this, think Ephesians 5, 1 Peter 3, these passages devalue women or say that they are inferior to men. Now, if you were a guy and you were like thinking in your mind because no one actually said it out loud, amen, you really don't understand what the Bible has to say about men and women, how they're created both with dignity, value, worth, and they're different in role and responsibility. If you think that as a man, if you think that because the Bible says for women to submit to men, that somehow you are better than them, you really don't understand what the Bible is actually saying, and it probably helps us to understand why you're still single. The submission that, a lot of people laugh at that, it's not a joke, it just explains it, it's a, it's a fact. But submission is a voluntary willingness to place oneself under the leadership of another. We do this all the time in life. We, for whatever reason, we seem to think that submission only exists and happens inside of marriages. But in all reality, we submit to other people's authority or are in the process of submitting to other people's authority all the time. You work, you submit to your boss's authority. You go to school, you submit to your professor's authority. Even in a church setting, you submit to pastor's authority, you submit to leader's authority, you put yourself in a position to be led by them. But for whatever reason, when we get to this type of submission, we want to chafe at it. And, and, and it's not should not surprise us. Genesis 3 says that for the rest of the days on earth that Eve is going to try to usurp Adam's authority. Why? Because that's a result of the fall. So it shouldn't surprise us that we struggle with authority. Shouldn't, shouldn't surprise us that sometimes, guys, we struggle to be passive in our leadership, and that leads to women feeling like, They need to step up and lead because you're so passive or I'm so passive. That should not surprise us when those things happen. But I want to say here at the beginning, this is a 
clear command from Scripture that you're supposed to submit to those who are in authority. And specifically, as this passage indicates, women are submit to submit to their own husbands. So they willfully put themselves in a position of submitting to them. So when you get married, when you say I do, when you promise to love and cherish and all of those jolly good things that as the person officiating is just trying to get us in and out as quickly as possible, because they're only here to see two things, the bride walk down the aisle in her dress and the free food. But when you covenant together, woman and man together, what you're saying as the wife is that I'm going to willfully put myself under his leadership. Now, here's what's interesting. The Lord Jesus Christ himself is the yardstick for what is fitting or pleasing for a wife to submit to. Catch that tonight. Wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Christ is the pattern of humility and submissiveness. So we look to him, or I would say women look to him, Christ, as the example of what it means to submit willfully. Christ submits willfully to the will of the Father as he comes and takes on the form of a servant and is made in the likeness of men. Even tells us in being found in fashion as a servant, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So Christ is the perfect example of what it looks like to submit. And he should be your ultimate guide and motivation for submitting. A lot of times what ends up happening is a wife submits because she cares about not ruffling the feathers of her husband. That's not the motivation for submission. Submission is not motivated by appeasing or listening or letting someone lead you. It's modeling what it means to follow after Christ. It's an empowering type of submission. Because, again, we point back here, submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Submit is a weaker word than the word obey that's going to be used with children and fathers and servants and masters. Why? Because ultimately you're not to obey your husband. You're just being obedient to a husband. One would have to say there's a lack of love that exists in that relationship. On probably on both sides. But further, it's a willing obligation. You think of the, the, the little kid, right, who's told time and time again, do this, do this, do this, sit down, sit down, sit down. You're going to fall and break your head open, sit down. And the child will sit down and say, inevitably, I'm sitting down on the outside, but on the inside, I'm standing up. As some sort of rebellious way of saying, I may be obeying you to your outward sight, but inside there's a rebellious heart. That's not what 
Paul's after here as he uses the language of submitting. Submission is a willful desire that's carried out for love and respect of the husband. It's fitting as in respect to the Lord. could say it it's in line with following the lord it shows an obedient and reverent heart towards christ not to your husband submission is never motivated by the husband it's motivated by christ because he is the greater and perfect adam he's motivating us and we should say this right we're going to get to the husbands and i'm going to unpack this a little bit further But it does say, husbands, love your wives. So there is a sense in which love is motivating that submission. We could say it this way. Love enables the wife to willfully submit. Doesn't mean that love has to be there, but love enables her to love him. As you love her and she submits to you, the the love that overflows out of that just continues to build for one another. And then it, it really honestly stops being leading and submitting. It almost in a weird sort of way is just living together and following Christ together. Because no one's really authoritatively saying, submit you must submit it's one of the cool things about uh, our relationship i know uh, you don't you may see a lot of us picking at one another and and just yelling at me a lot Um, that's normal that happens all the time there's not been one major life decision though that we've made where we weren't on the same page and there's never been a major life decision that we haven't, where I've ever had to say, hey, like, get on board or get out. One, because I know she can take me, because I won't hit a girl. But two, because honestly, honestly, I wouldn't want to do anything that she didn't believe wholeheartedly in. I wouldn't want to go somewhere and pastor people that she wasn't fully in and believed that God had called us both there. And at times, if I can just be honest with you, she keeps me here because when I get discouraged and want to flee, she reminds me that God has called me here. When college students are difficult, as you sometimes can be, or when you're taxing, or when there's difficulties that arise in the ministry and I want to leave, she reminds me often that God has called us here and he hasn't called us anywhere else. So in love, suck it up, buttercup, because this is what God's called us for. And we press into each other as we press into Christ. Because difficulties and discouragements come. And if you can't lean on the person that you're married to, I don't know who you're going to lean on to. I really don't. If you can't lean on to the person that you're married and that person push you towards Jesus, I don't know why you're dating them. I don't know why you're engaged to them. Which leads me to ask this question. Guys, are you looking for this woman? Are you you 
looking for her. I'm just being honest. Most of the chatter that I hear and have heard over the years about why I'm with this girl or that girl leaves me wondering, yes, I understand that she's attractive. I understand that. I understand that she's funny or witty. I understand that she may make a lot of money. But ultimately, none of that really matters if she's not going to submit to anyone else's leadership. Brothers, beware of the, the, the woman who's always spurning against everybody. Who can't submit to anyone in any leadership position. the gender whatever but I just want to say this if a guy that you're dating treats your treats his mom like trash there's a pretty good indication that when you get married he's going to treat you like trash and if he won't submit to the leaders that God has placed over him sisters watch the way he interacts with pastors one way in front of them and another way be behind them? Beware of that, brother. Does he have a hard time submitting to his bosses at work, his teachers at school? Does he have a tendency to flare and rage up against people? Beware of that, brother. And I'm not saying, like, here's what ends up happening. You preach any one of these sermons, and then somebody tells me, well, did you hear that so-and-so broke up in their cars after your, the, the, the message? And I'm like, that wasn't of me, and I'm not sure if it was the Spirit. Don't rush into making any rash decisions based on one relationship series or sermon that you hear. Hit the time out and say, if there are things that are becoming flags to me, maybe we need to have a conversation about how we can mutually grow in this area. And then I want to ask this question. This will be very timely. Are we guarding, are you guarding, are we guarding against people using the Bible to abuse other people? Brothers, I, I want to encourage you tonight. If you have another brother in Christ who's dating a girl and is saying, you must submit, you need to submit, do what I tell you to do, and you don't ever call him on the carpet for that? Or if he does it in a more manipulative way where it's not so strong and overhanded, can I just ask you why you refuse to do what the Bible calls you to, to love that brother and call him on his sin? Sisters, if you have a girlfriend that refuses to be led at all by her boyfriend, constantly bucks against everything or anyone around her, why do you allow her to continue that life? You know what the plain, clear teaching of Scripture is. I want to say one other thing before we move to husbands. 
but I think is really worth bringing to the surface. Notice what the text says. Submit to your own husbands. The Bible never calls for women to submit to all men in the same way that a wife will submit to her husband. There are clear distinction lines drawn everywhere in the New Testament that a woman is supposed to submit to her husband and she might submit to other men who are in authority. But I want to be clear tonight that the Bible is also unequivocally clear that there's nothing wrong with a strong, wise, smart businesswoman or woman that leads outside of the home. Proverbs 31 makes this incredibly clear. It's probably the most dusted over part of that passage. This woman is an asset, not a liability to her husband. She goes and is a renowned business trader. So to the whole like barefoot kit in the kitchen type jokes that still are cracked even among some of you here, you need to rid yourself of that unbiblical and contrary to God's word line of thinking. But again, I just want to say this as lovingly as I can. The borderline feminism that exists in the church that puts women who choose to stay at home, to rear children, to love their husbands, and be a good homemaker, as she's some sort of weak, second-class citizen, is also wicked, ungodly, and unbiblical. So now let's move to the husbands. Paul now turns to the husbands to address them. It's worth noting here that you can... Go and read all kinds of Hellenistic codes that will talk at length about what it means in the first century for a wife to take care of her husband. But you will find very few, if any, Hellenistic codes, first century cultural writings that talk about a husband taking care of his wife. Which is just another evidence when we stack the Bible up. And to those who would say that the Bible is oppressive towards women, we would say actually the Bible is more pro-women than anything that was written at the time or anything that will come after it. Because it's first on the scene saying something to men about how they care for their wives. It says, husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter toward them. Husbands are called to love their wives. This is not a... uh, you may have heard there's multiple Greek words for love and they're used different ways. This word here being used is the idea of a selfless giving type of love. One that values and cherishes his wife above everything other than Christ, you could say. Here in the first century, the Colossian men would have heard something way different in the church than what would have been spoken on the street in Colossae. Because the first century world told men to value women in accordance to what benefit they can bring you. Meaning, 
women, more often than not, were chosen to be married, not on the basis of genuine love and affection and care for one another, but based on what they brought to the table, i.e. being able to produce more people, have kids, care for men, take care of all the things that a man wouldn't want to worry about. So understand that in the first century world, this is completely countercultural to what they are accustomed to. And I like to think about what goes through the Colossian man's mind as he hears this instruction after coming to know Christ. His whole life being taught that women are something that are for the service of men. That's the only reason why they exist. And here in the first century, the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is saying, no, you give yourself up for your wife. Good cross-references to Ephesians 5. This is completely different than what our culture even tells us as men what it looks like and what it means to be a man in our world today. And we have to be careful that we don't buy into the culture's way or the world's way of understanding what it means to be a man. But rather to say, I'm going to sacrificially live for the benefit of others. Not myself. I put others first. Again, girls, ladies, men, people that aren't men, I should cover it again. Are you blinded by love? I used to think that that was stupid. I was like, there's nobody who's going to be blinded by love. Love is an emotion. It's deceptive. Um, And that should have tipped me off first when I was thinking this through. And there's no way that anyone could be blinded by love. And then I became a college pastor. And I watch it happen all the time. He's going with him. He's going with her. I say it that way because that's old-fashioned language because I just get confused by talking, texting, and all the rest of the mumbo-jumbo, take the theological word, the crapola that exists and what it means to get into a dating relationship anymore. What is going on there? And and I want to ask you not to look, right? This is what Paul's after, or Saul's after, with God when he goes to pick David to be the replacement for Saul. This should be the number one thing that rings in our ears as we look and evaluate and consider who we might date and who we might marry. God is always after and looking at the heart of man. And as people who can't see the heart, I just would like to encourage us not to be distracted by the outward. I understand. He's hot. I would tell any girl or guy that would say she's hot so is not it's not a good metric for judging who or what we should be dating and in a relationship with because we we do this all the time brothers you're supposed to be selfless 
if you can't be selfless towards your mom and your sisters, I don't really think 10 years from now you're going to be selfless with your wife. And this isn't in the actual text here. This is free and outside. I would just tell you this. Both genders here. Going to to both genders. Watch the way that the person you're dating engaged you or thinking about dating treats the people who can bring them no benefit. You go on a date, watch the way he treats the busboys, the waiters, and the waitresses. Watch the way she interacts with those people as well. Because if the only time people get his or her attention is when that person can benefit them, you better watch out that they might be living more for self than they are for you. Take the blinders off. It also says and concludes with this thought. Husbands, do not be bitter toward them. Could say it, don't be harsh towards them. This idea of, I think men are more prone to, towards this. Just means they have, maybe have more of a natural proclivity towards this. Of marriage not meeting their standards and responding the wrong way. When you get married and things don't seem to go the way that you thought they were going to go. You had an idea of what this was supposed to look like and then it doesn't. And your temptation is to rage and to be harsh and to yell and be frustrated. The Apostle Paul is saying, don't choose that way. Choose love. And not in the Disney, Pixar, love overlooks everything, but choosing to care more about the person that you're married to than you do about the fact that your expectations haven't been met. Dick Lucas is so helpful here. He says, how horrifyingly easy is it for us to destroy human relationships, even the closest and dearest to us, by being overly harsh. I think men have a proclivity towards this. I know that women can be equally as harsh. I've heard some very harsh things from women in my life, even in regards to pastoral ministry, the way that I preach and teach the Bible. I I would just tell you, like, harshness should not be a defining marker of what it looks like to be a Christian. And if you're going to be a strong Christian man and lead your household well, you're going to be a good dad, you're going to be a good husband, you're going to be a great leader at your work, you need to not buy into the temptation to rage against the man. You need to not buy into the temptation also to be so passive that in your passiveness, you're also harsh. You know, that passive-aggressive type of man. You need to be committed to loving God, serving others, and caring ultimately that He be glorified. Because it's not enough to say that you believe all the stuff that precedes Colossians 3 or Colossians 3.18. It's coupling it with active living. So men, are you loving tonight? 
I don't mean loving in the sense that you're kind to people. I don't mean that you're, you do nice things for people. I, I, that is not a benchmark of love, the fact that you are nice to people. But you genuinely seek to serve others around you and genuinely care about the well-being of those around you. And then, and then women, are you looking for this? Are you looking for a man who is more consumed with serving and making much of Jesus than he is anything else? That should be the most attractive thing to you about the person you're going to marry. Not his smile, not some region of his body that will fade. some attribute of his personality that's just so funny but is he radically redeemed and saved and everywhere he goes it just appeases others I want to be that man just being honest I'm not there yet I'm not perfect you can ask a lot of people they will be quick to tell you that I'm not perfect I make mistakes I say things that are harsh at times let me tell you this I'm striving and trying to make corrections and be sanctified and transformed by Jesus Christ. And the same thing should be going through each and every one of our hearts and minds that actually know and have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And we're trying to be the women and men that God's called us to be in this really messed up world.